0: Let's take up the Word of God again, and this time find our place in Matthew 12. And we'll end with the last verse of the section we looked at last Sunday. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 14. And our focus will be from 14 to 21. Matthew 12, 14 through 21 hear the word of the Lord but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him Jesus aware of this withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick. He will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Lord, as we seek to find the riches within your word, open the eyes of our hearts that we might know the depth of sin and the reach of your grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we look to at the end of the section from last week, we remember uh, the confrontation between Pharisees and Jesus, uh, and this would be the second large confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. The first being about uh, whom his him and his disciples uh, were eating with, uh, and then in this one, it was about the Pharisees uh, calling the disciples guilty of profaning the Sabbath for plucking the grain, the the heads of grain. And eating them on the Sabbath day. Uh, Jesus rebukes them, lays it down for them. And then we get to verse 14 and their response to Jesus' uh, response to them. He says, but the Pharisees, or I'm sorry, Matthew says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So up to this point, it's become very clear that Jesus is getting under the skin of the Pharisees, scribes, and the like. He's begun to expose their hypocrisy. This word is going to become more and more prevalent as we go through Matthew. He's exposing their acting. Which the word hypocrisy is that in the Greek. It's but someone acting out a part. He's exposing this. He's beginning to reveal it and not just their hypocrisy, but their legalism. All throughout uh, Matthew, beginning in chapter 5, we see these touches that Jesus is making towards the religious hypocrites and legalists of Israel. He says things like this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so... He's saying, if you live as a Pharisee and you make it to their righteousness in pursuit of righteousness, you will fall short. Now, we could get into that, but we don't have time. Uh, he then says also, when, uh, in speaking about the religious hypocrisy and legalism within Israel, he gives the, the, uh, the, the exhortation about um, praying and giving. And how one ought to do it. He says when you give to the needy sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Jesus has come at the Pharisees in a way of authority. And that's bothered them because they have had the authority up until this point. They're the ones who have set the rules and the commands and has showed everyone that they can keep the rules and commands that they put upon everyone else. But Jesus is coming and saying, no, I speak with authority of a lawmaker. I do deeds of him who is the son of man. And he's made that declaration to the religious elite uh, hypocrites and legalists and declaring himself to be the son of man who has all authority. And they've responded again with these attacks that I've already mentioned in chapter 9 and then in this chapter 12 as he's embarrassed them. Jesus is beginning to embarrass them. He's highlighted that they are truly ignorant of that which they think they know all about. He said the things like this if you would have known, or why don't you go and learn? And he speaks about Old Testament language that they say they know and have read. Jesus, not with the intent of humiliating the Pharisees, is humiliating the Pharisees as he responds to their self-righteousness and confrontation. And we're going to see a distinction between both of those ways, the ways of the Pharisees and the ways of Jesus, the servant mentioned in Isaiah 42 as we go along. Um, How have they been embarrassed? To what degree is Jesus undercutting their authority, showing their hypocrisy and their legalism? Well, it comes out in verse 14. They went out... And conspired against him how to destroy him. So not, not, maybe there's been some thoughts in their minds about their dislike of this Jesus. But now those thoughts are coming out among themselves and they're conspiring with one another. They're coming into counsel with one another. You, you, you've probably heard of modern day someone be a, a charged with conspiracy to whatever well that is people coming together to make a plot, a plan to break the law. That's what the Pharisees are beginning to do. They're beginning to conspire to come together to plot and counsel with one another on how they might destroy Jesus. Now it's interesting if you look at the word destroy in Matthew, like because in other parts of the gospels it that uses the word they plan to kill or they, they look to kill. But for some reason, Matthew in this point uses the word to destroy. And I just wanted to see how that word had come about in Matthew. Well, when Herod was concerned about his authority and his place of power, he also looked to destroy Jesus. And how did he do that? By slaughtering Countless amounts of babies in uh, Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. So you see the intent behind what it is to destroy. We also have uh, the disciples use that same Greek word when they're on the lake and the storms come and they cry out to Jesus. And I think most translations say, uh, Jesus, save us. We're we're perishing. They, They use the same Greek word that that Matthew uses here in in the Pharisees' intent to destroy. They're saying they are becoming utterly undone. They're coming to the point of the end of their life. And then outside of Matthew, just trying to help you understand the disdain, the hate, and the conspiring, the level at which the Pharisees are doing this, John uses this same word in John 3.16. Whoever... For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall, shall not be destroyed. Like, that's the intent behind it, that they want to utterly wipe him out. Right? That's their motivation. Now, two quick observations on sin from this idea. Number one, sin is always a slippery slope. Sin is always a slippery slope. Let's say these Pharisees, their intent in the beginning was just to be thought well of. They had a little pride in who they were. They wanted a little praise from man. But it ends in their desire to murder. Do you, do you see, it could start out small, but grows. Pharisees were after the spotlight. They desired exaltation, self-exaltation, but self-exaltation swims in the pool of pride and greed. It looks at others with contempt. It strives, self-exaltation, striving for the spotlight, strives to keep others out of the spotlight, strives to keep others from blessing. But when others show promise or are blessed, Covetousness then comes, and covetousness then comes and builds resentment and hatred in their heart. And from that, at best, resentment leads to gossip and slander, threats, but at worst, in our situation here, murder. Sin, you can start small, but in an instant, you're in it deep. Which leads to the next point about sin, thinking about the Pharisees and their uh, hatred, coming from their hypocrisy. Sin desires to live. Sin does not want to be destroyed. Sin will fight to live, and that's why sin grows from small to worse. That's why a lie is needed to keep another lie. That's why resentment lives in the heart of the selfish. That's why murder follows hatred. In order for the sin of the Pharisees to continue to to continue to prosper, they came to one final conclusion. Jesus must die. He must be destroyed. So, just to conclude this, these observations, how do you respond when righteousness and truth Press against your sin. How do you respond. When righteousness and truth. Press against your sin. If you respond in the flesh. You'll respond in sin. But if you respond in the spirit. You respond in confession and repentance. Is one or the other. And. Oh, I'm just not going to talk about it or I'm just going to hide it. That's sin. Righteousness and truth always agitates sin. If you sit under the word of God, if you read the word of God, if your spouse or your neighbor puts truth or righteousness before you and you squirm, there might be something to repent and confess. That's not a bad thing. To feel uncomfortable, convicted by the word of God, convicted by righteousness and truth is a grace of God that you might not be destroyed. Do you understand? Do not let... Churches that don't want uncomfortableness are dead or dying. When churches... and And Christians say, Do not make me uncomfortable by the word of God. They have one foot in the grave. Because the only way to live is through dying, as we've been saying on Wednesday night. Put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. The Pharisees had nothing to do with that. They wanted nothing. They loved what they had. They were looking for the treasure, the pleasure of this world. Now, verse 15. Uh, is an interesting verse, and verse 16. We could read it at quick glance and just think of it as filler, without importance, but two major things happen. Um, Jesus, number one, Jesus was... Let me read it, verse 15 and 16. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, where he was, uh, as he was in this confrontation, maybe not that day, but in that time frame, And many followed him, and he healed them and ordered them not to make them known. So something's happening here that's super important. Jesus is keeping the eternal plan of redemption going. And he's fulfilling the prophecy that outlines or lays out what is happening in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in redeeming the world and building a kingdom. So what plan is Jesus keeping? The I just said it, the redemptive plan of the Trinity to save the world, to redeem God's creation. It's a plan that was established pre-creation. Like what Jesus is doing in verse 15 and 16 was worked out before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1, for example, shows us that We know the plan of redemption began before the world was founded. And there's a quote in Ephesians 1 that says, And it is being worked out by the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Jesus is keeping this going. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time there was a purpo- there was a timeline to what was happening. God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. All of history, from Genesis to this point, in Matthew twelve, was not an accident. Or by chance. We looked at this this morning in Sunday school. That God has declared the beginning from the end and all things in between. And no one, this is what you, how you can title verse 15 and 16. No one will thwart God's plan. Not even a bunch of legalistic hypocrites who want to kill Jesus. And not even a crowd that's excited about Jesus. Let's think about this for a second. Look 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 what he does. He withdraws verse 15 from the Pharisees who desire to kill him. Well, what do we know about Jesus? He came to die at the hands of such people. But not in Matthew 12. It wasn't time. He had, a divine, he had divine appointments that were set up before creation began. He had places to go, people to see, sermons to preach, and that's what he did. Look at the rest of the verse. And many followed him, and he healed them all. He goes and, and, and not only fulfills his divine appointments to where he should be, what he needs to preach, but he also is not just running away, hiding and doing things, but he is performing as God, healing people, doing miracles, showing himself to be the Son of Man. But then what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Why would Jesus, the Son of Man, who's come to die at the hands of lawless and sinful men, who also desire to draw all men to himself, why would he tell them not to tell anyone? It's kind of a head-scratcher. But what if doing these wonderful miracles and all of these healings became uh, the talk of the town and he becomes more popular over time? You might think, well, wouldn't that help him with his concern with the Pharisees? Maybe they would appreciate him and draw him in and share their wealth of wisdom with one another. And they could build this kingdom together. But that's not what he was called to do. Perceiving then that they were to come and take him by force, John writes, to make him king. Because what? Jesus had fed the crowds. He had healed them. He had... uh, uh, battled against the demons, and they were the crowds in John 6 were riled up and wanted to make him king, but that was not his way. Jesus re- withdrew. From that crowd. So we see Jesus withdraw from a crowd in Matthew eleven who desire to kill him, but then we see him to then we see him tell a crowd also in Matthew twelve, excuse me, who might get too excited and want to make him king because that was not his way either. What was his way? Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men. See, Jesus doesn't desire popularity. Or to be exalted. This is what Matthew's getting at. Matthew's drawing us to something said in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, through four different chapters in Isaiah, where we hear of what's called the servant's song, where we get the phrase, the suffering servant. This is the one whom God is bringing into the world to do his will and purpose. And Matthew is showing us that Jesus is fulfilling all of this. That's why in Matthew 5 or I'm sorry Isaiah 53 at the apex of the servant song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 we see that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. That's how Jesus was seen as he took upon a cross. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities with his wounds, not his popularity, not with his great preaching, but at the hands of lawless men as they hammered nails into his hands and his feet As they whipped him and scourged him, as he hung on a bloody wooden tree, as he was cursed by those wounds, we are healed. This is what Matthew's pointing out. Look what he says in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes on to quote verse um, 1 through 3 of Isaiah 42. But before we get there, let me just think a minute about how God works. I want to do a thought experiment. So you're let's just say you're a disciple. You're you're among the 12, okay? And you know a lot about prophecy, about Isaiah's prophecy, so to say. And so you're you're walking around, you know Jesus because you you know the suffering servant, you know the servant's song, that he's going to come and be a man of sorrows, maybe even born to die. And you see the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus, and you're like, I see how it's going to happen. And then you get in this moment in Matthew 12, and you know, you get this sense that they're ready to take him out, and Jesus runs away. You're like, wait. But this is, you're, you're, you're the suffering servant. You're supposed to be Taken by these men. Now, this is a thought experiment. This this isn't happening. It doesn't happen. But it doesn't happen the way you expect it to. And then you watch Jesus go out away from them. But you also know about the the glories and the miracles and the things that he's supposed to do and that he's to call many people to him and the crowds get huge because he's healing everyone he's he's taking away the demons he's feeding everyone he's doing all these wonderful things and you think oh okay maybe this is the way this is the way the kingdom is going to come in this is the way Jesus is going to bring everyone to himself and then he says the most ridiculous thing and they all leave and you're like I don't understand I don't understand what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing. God has a plan, a purpose, a will. It will never be bumped off course. And there are a a lot of times you're not going to understand it. There will be a lot of times that Jesus will do something in your life that just doesn't make sense. Sometimes you'll be on the mountain and you'll think, I know exactly what he's doing. But then just around the corner is the valley. And you say, I have no idea. I don't know what he's doing. But what we do know, as God's plan is being fulfilled, is that the path that you should be on is always clear. It's always evident. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And in that trusting and obeying, regardless of whether we're on the mountain and everyone loves us or in the valley and maybe someone just wants to strangle us, worship The pursuit of holiness and the giving of ourselves over to service to the to one another and to the world. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That is the obvious path and plan God has for us. All the other things we leave to him because he knows perfectly what is taking place? So we get to the prophecy. I mean I'm sorry, the 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 fulfillment of the prophecy, the 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 reading of it here in Matthew twelve, verse eighteen. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Well, let's back up for a second, because it, it, it's kind of hard to just read it without thinking about what's taking place in 15, 16, 17. Well, in 14, 15, 16, 17. Go back to 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So let's think about the dominoes what that happens here. Okay, so the, they conspired to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this domino, withdrew from them. Domino. How, uh, and many followed him because what? He withdrew. All right. As he withdrew and they followed him, he healed them. And as he healed them, he also ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah what part of that was spoke was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet isaiah well all of it all of it was trying to get to this point that's going to be confirmed in verses 18 through 21 and i've already mentioned it a little bit jesus left the pharisees because it was he was not the type of guy to quarrel and to throw fits and confrontations with the pharisees or with anybody which we'll see in the prophecy But he was also not someone to go and build up a crowd in order to overthrow Rome, which we'll also see here in the prophecy. We've got Matthew, who is a Jew, writing to a Jewish audience, and he takes a moment in this section to point out that Jesus is this servant from Isaiah. The three things I want us to see is, we we won't spend a lot of time on these, is Matthew wants us to see Jesus as Messiah. He wants us to see Jesus in his mission and then also see the method, the Messiah, the mission and the method. What does Isaiah say about Jesus as Messiah? Well, very plainly, he is the servant of Isaiah 42. He wants his Jewish audience to know that the person in Isaiah 42, the person in Isaiah 53, this is is fulfilled in the man that the pharisees are trying to kill he is the characteristics that come out servant of god the hope of israel and the light of the world specifically he says jesus is god's servant the beloved of god Chosen by God to do his will and fulfill his purpose. And in God he is well pleased. And that God will put his spirit upon Jesus and do all his work to accomplish it. That's verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Matthew is not just telling the Jew who is reading this, but he's also telling the whole world who reads this this gospel. Even if everyone has contempt and desires to kill him, you must understand that Jesus of Nazareth, even if they call him demon-possessed, a madman, a heretic, or even a myth, you must know that he is the Savior of the world. He comes to proclaim justice to the nations. That's who he is, the Messiah. There's something I want us to understand here. Something that's very interesting. Notice the characteristics that are listed in verse 18. I'm going to name them again. I've already done it once, but hear them. He calls Jesus, my servant, my being God's servant. God's servant, God's chosen, God's beloved, the one in whom God is well pleased, and the one whom God has put on his spirit. What else does that sound like? servant, chosen, loved, pleased in the sight of God, and filled with the Spirit. The church. A Christian. A servant, chosen, loved, pleased in the sight of God, and filled with the Spirit. Now, I say all that. To actually warn us 2,000 years plus has gone by since this has been written do you know how who gets called these things more today in the church Wh- whom whom do we acknowledge has these characteristics more today in the church us we put these on us we, we use these which are true to help us. We say, yes, God loves me. Yes, I'm chosen. Yes, I'm pleased. He's pleased in me. Yes, I'm filled with the spirit. All the while forgetting that the only reason that we are these things is because Jesus was these things first. The only way someone is A servant, chosen, loved, God is pleased in them and filled with the spirit is because you are in him who is all of these things. And we've made Christianity, we've taken these truths about what it is to be in Christ and we've built ourselves up. We've made song after song after song. I am this, I am this, I am that, I am that. All to help us feel better as we go into this twisted and crooked generation. And we go and we tell ourselves we're this. And the world says, no you're not, no you're not, no you're not. And it's, yes I am, yes I am, yes I am. All forgetting that we should be telling the world that Jesus is these things. That I am these because he is him. Christianity has become... Taking on the gifts of Christianity has become a positive therapy for us getting through a day. Instead of worshiping, exalting, and following Him who was and is all of these things, Jesus Christ. The the point I want to make, and the point of if it's rebuke, it's rebuke. If it's encouragement, it's encouragement. You are none of these things apart from Jesus Christ. Therefore, you owe him everything because of his relationship with the Father. Christianity isn't about our relationship with God, but it's our being brought into the relationship that already exists. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John 17 Anything we are in the sight of God or with God is because we are in Christ. And if we are to glorify our heavenly position or status or the love that we say is upon us while putting in the back seat the one who actually raised us up into the heavenly places, the one who justified us by his righteous life, the one who cleansed us by his blood on a bloody cross, the one who lives still to make intercession for us. If we do that and only look to what we receive and forget about him who did all of that for us, we trample on the gospel. We ridicule the eternal plan that was laid before the foundations of the world and... We spit in the face of Jesus. Are you a Christian without Christ? Are you a churchgoer who does not worship? Are you a prayer who does not trust? Do you declare that you are chosen and loved by God, but yet your heart does not yearn for the Son of God? If so, you find yourself in the same crowd as the Pharisees, a hypocrite. But good news is here this morning. Hypocrisy is not the unpardonable sin. Legalism is is not inescapable, but there's hope for you this morning as Christ has been crucified, has been raised. He is the servant. He is the chosen. He is beloved. He is the one in whom God is pleased. And when we unite ourselves to him by faith and confess our hypocrisy, we are cleansed, covered, and then a servant, loved, chosen, filled with the Spirit, and pleased in the sight of God. And only then you must believe and put away your self-righteousness and trust in Christ, the Messiah. That leads us to the mission. Matthew, a Jew, again writing to the Jewish Jewish audience, not only wants his audience to know that this mission, Man is the, the, the servant Messiah spoken of in Isaiah 42. But he also wants them to understand that the covenants of God, the plan of redemption goes beyond Israel to the whole world and that he will accomplish his mission, which is to hold justice victorious. You see it in verse the end of verse 18 and also in 20. I will put my spirit upon him and he will he will he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And at the end of 20, he brings justice to victory. Now, I think everyone's translation probably says he proclaimed justice to the Gentiles. And in the end of verse 20, he brings just or uh, verse 21 in his name, the Gentiles will hope someone's might say nations. But that's the literal translation of that Greek word, nations. So you have to understand why we would use these words. Why Matthew, why Isaiah would use this word Gentile, which literally means nations. God wants Israel to understand that God created all nations in one sense. God created, if it exists... It's because of God. But he created Israel in a divine sense, in a redemptive sense. And that all the other nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his offspring, which is what? One nation, Israel. We see this play out in the Gospel of Matthew as this one nation whom God created for the plan of redemption Rejects him. Rejects their own redeemer. And God's judgment comes to this nation. And we see it here. And we see it throughout the the rest of the gospel of Matthew. As God condemns Jerusalem. And he he weeps over them. That they had not come to him. But again, we must understand that it has been the plan from the beginning that all the nations, not just the one nation Israel, but all the nations would find themselves blessed by Yahweh. And Matthew wants Israel to know this. And he also wants Israel to understand and the reader to understand that as this is accomplished, what will take place is that justice will be victorious in all the world. Understand that from the moment of Genesis 3, all the nations have had contempt for justice. Have been lawless. You think about the tower. You think about Cain and Abel. Think about the Tower of Babel. Think about the flood, Babylon, Rome. It goes on and on. And just to show you what God was doing, is doing, in this plan of redemption through the servant that is Jesus Christ, I can only express it, I can best express it through reading to you Psalm 2 and Psalm 67. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, my servant, my chosen, my beloved on Zion, my hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is justice Throughout the world. Now, therefore, O King, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, the chosen, the beloved, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And you think, man, that is not the kind of that's not the kind of plan that I thought God had. He's going to be that harsh and that wrathful and that vengeful. Yes, there will be that. But Psalm 67 gives us sort of commentary on what actually is said in verse 21 of Matthew 12, which says this. In his name, the Gentiles, the nations will hope will trust. And Psalm 67 says it this way. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Still, same word. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. In his name, the nations will hope. I want you to think about your problems today. They might be financial. You might be having problems in your marriage. You might be having problems at work. You might, you might be in sin. You might be person being persecuted. Whatever your problem is today, I want you to all look at the last phrase in our passage And in His name, the nations, the world, will hope and trust in Christ. This is where we're going. And so, oh, for a little while, the pains and the agony, the suffering, are just but a moment in time. Because one day... The whole world will declare the victory of the justice of Jesus. Think about where we are now and think about where we will be. All the nations will hope and trust in Him. Now, that's the mission. Just a couple words about the method. I've already touched on them. Matthew's telling his audience as he looks to Isaiah 42 that God's going to do it his way. He's contrasting the servant to the religious leaders of Israel and maybe even to the kings of the nations as we read in Psalm 2. The Messiah, the servant of God, the chosen, the beloved, will not implore the tactics of worldly leaders. But he will win the world through meekness, truth, righteousness, and humility. Verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench you think about the pharisees they're confrontational confrontational they they they're in the face they're quarrelsome they're looking for strife they parade themselves in the synagogues looking for the best seats they let everyone know that they're praying they let everyone know that they're fasting they they make such a, 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 a they make such a, a cry but jesus the servant he will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, but he will pursue truth, righteousness, and love through meekness and humility. And he, by doing those things, will be victorious. I just couldn't help but to think about American politics. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Lord, help us. And the children that lead our governments, local, state, Lord, help us, that they might imitate this servant. Meekness, truth, righteousness, humility. Don't imitate politicians. Imitate Christ. Verse 20 is a difficult one to interpret, but we can come away with something very general about it, and that's okay. Jesus operates in the way we just explained, in gentleness, in such a way that a bruised reed will not be broken, or a, a candle that's about to go out. Jesus operates in a way where it will not even go out, but yet... He operates with such power that he brings justice to victory. So that's the contrast that you have to see. The power of Jesus is so great that he brings justice to victory across the whole world and yet so gentle that a, broken, or that a bruised reed is not broken or a flickering candle is not blown out. Many people interpret that many different ways. What's the bruised reed? What's the what's the candle? Some say that that's the wickedness of the Pharisees. That that even in his bringing justice, he's he's gentle in some degree to the wickedness that's right in front of him. That he could have just crushed them. Some take it to be just people. Are you a bruised reed? A smoldering candle? Yeah. If the power that wins the victory of this world approaches us, would it not crush us and put us out? Absolutely. Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart. That's what we read in Matthew 11. And as he comes to defeat death, Sin and Satan. He's gentle with sinners like you and I. Spurgeon puts it better than I ever could. The feeblest are not disdained by our Lord Jesus. Though apparently useless as a bruised reed or even actually offensive as a smoking candle, He is gentle. And exercises no harsh severity. Jesus bears and forbears with those who are unlovely in his eyes. He longs to bind up the broken reed and fan the smouldering flame, the smouldering candle into a flaming life. Oh, that poor sinners would remember this and trust him. In his name The nations will hope. Put your trust in him who will be victorious in redeeming this world. The angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the sea. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, may the words that have been spoken today not return void, but that by the power that brings forth justice to the earth, bring forth fruit in the hearts of Christians and hearers today, might convictions stir up sorrow and mourning and bring sons and daughters to repentance. Teach us more of our Messiah. Show us more of His mission. And help us to imitate more His method. Have mercy on us. Bless our fellowship, for we are united together by your grace joined together to Christ our head filled together with your spirit we give thanks that we can declare that we are the church of Jesus Christ together strengthen us that we might be of one accord united in pursuit of your glory and the interest of others let us Imitate the beloved chosen servant who is victorious over this wicked world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and turn in our hymnal to 177 and respond to the word of God.